We're at uh, Job chapter 40 and 42 is where we're going to be looking at. We have reached the point in the book of Job where we've heard the story of Job losing everything. We have seen the conversation between Job and his friends, which is the majority of the book. We have heard the Lord speak. We looked at that last week and how God just poured out his, his heart to Job and basically laid out for him a picture of who God is. And this morning, we get Job's response. As we look at this response, we're going to take a look at not the specific words that Job uses, but the attitude that he demonstrates. And in that, to describe that, we're going to use a couple of words. A couple of words that some people might say are my favorite words, and a couple people might say are my least favorite words. Now, to help us think about words and you know, what my favorite words might be, I want us all to picture a two-year-old. Now, some of you are closer to two years old than others, so it might be easier for you to remember. Some of us may not remember two-year-old, but just think of a two-year-old, okay? That stage of life that we call the terrible twos, which we all as parents know starts at about one and a half and goes to 22. That's just the way it works out. But, you know, think of a two-year-old. Now, what are a two-year-old's favorite words? What are the words that you hear most often coming out of a two-year-old's mouth? Now, some of you are already leaning over and whispering. I want you actually to do that. In your family groups or those sitting close by you, just, just quickly share, share with each other, what are the favorite words that a two-year-old says? And by the way, if there's nobody sitting beside you, just turn around. You can talk across the empty row. That's good. That's good. Okay, now we're going to play a game of Family Feud, okay? I've, 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 I've got three words picked. I'm curious to see how many people picked the same words I did. No! Oh, yeah! Why? Yeah! What about gimme? Yeah, a few of them got that. I heard another one up here, hungry, which is kind of gimme, just specifically to food, you know? You know, these are words that we hear a two-year-old use all the time. You might say they're their favorite words. Funny how you don't have to teach a kid to say no, but you have to teach them to say yes. You don't have to teach them to say give me, but you have to teach them to share. We're going to come back to this thought of, of how these words fit in with our human nature in just a moment, but I want to just read for us Job's reply. Remember, this comes right after God has just painted an amazing picture of who he is. He's talked about creation and how he's created all things, how he's in control of all things, and how he's the God who his judgment is the judgment that passes all understanding. And that's what we've seen, what we talked about last week. Here's Job's response. Chapter 40, verse 2. The Lord says, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Chapter 42. This is the end of the speech that the Lord gives. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, 
and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Will you join me with in prayer? Father, as we look into these words from Scripture, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will anoint my lips, that your words will be spoken and not mine. But I pray also that you will open each one of our ears to hear you, that you will open our minds to understand what you are saying to us, that you will open our hearts to be willing to apply what you are teaching us. Lord, I commit this time to you. May your words be shared, I pray in your name. Amen. So, favorite words. By the way, Pastor's Club, here's what I want you to draw a picture of. Oh, that got some heads popping up over here in this section over here. Here's what I want you to draw, and all the rest of the kids that are all around wherever they are on the live stream. I want you to draw a picture of you using one of your favorite words, but here's what I want in the picture. I want to know what the favorite word is, and I want to know who are you saying it to? So that's what I want the picture of. And by the way, Pastors Club, exciting announcement. Mark the date, December 6th, on your calendar. Sunday afternoon, the Pastors Club get-together is going to happen on that day. More details are going to come out in the next week. And so mark that date on your calendar. So, favorite words. When I take a look at Job's response, I see a shift in Job's attitude. Up till this point in the book, Job has been quite, dare I say, arrogant, proud, self-focused. I mean, look at the conversations he's had with God and the way he's been crying out to God. His logic has been, God, you're a God of judgment and you judge those that are wicked and wicked and oftentimes that looks like suffering, but you bless the blameless and I've been blameless. I don't deserve this. God, I want to appeal to you. I want to speak directly to you. You are wrong. That's what Job has been saying. Now, after the Lord speaks to him, we see a shift. And if I were to describe Job's response in two words, I would use these two words. Humble, submission. You know, up till this point, Job has been using the language similar to a two-year-old. God, give me what I want. I don't deserve this. I deserve blessing. Give me your understanding. I don't know why this is happening. I want this. I need this. That's kind of been Job's focus. Now, granted, he does it kind of gently, but if you really take a look at what Job is saying, he has been using that type of language. But all of a sudden now, there's a shift. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, I spoke of things I did not 
understand. The moment I use the words humble submission, there probably are people that are starting to cringe already. Those are two words that we don't like to use. I mean, the opposite of humble is proud. Humble means to put another before you. It means to think of yourself less than others. That kind of goes against our natural nature, doesn't it? We want to focus on ourselves. We want to experience things. And what does the word submit mean? It's an attitude to choose to put oneself under the authority of other, but it also means to do what is best for another person, which implies an action, obey. Now, those are some things that don't come naturally to us, do they? Why does a two-year-old start out by saying no? Well, why did Adam and Eve take the apple in the first place? Okay, we need to clarify something. We don't know it's an apple, okay? We just use that language. The Bible just says it was fruit. But we draw this picture of an apple, so call it an apple, call it whatever you want. Maybe it was a pear, maybe it was a peach, maybe it was something that doesn't even exist anymore. Doesn't matter. We know there was a specific, two specific trees and that they were told they were not to eat of the fruit from that tree. So why did they? Do you really think that Eve was walking along one day and going, I am so hungry, there is no way I can make it to the next tree over there to get fruit. I have to stop here and eat this. Or do you think it was that that fruit just looked so much better than all the rest that she went, yeah, I think that this, this is the, the ripest fruit right now. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan comes and he tempted them with some interesting questions. Did God really say that you would die if you ate of that fruit? Kind of like the question, why? God says you can't eat it. Why? Why not? Why can't I eat it? And Satan digs in a little bit and says, well, really, here's what's going to happen. If, if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know right from wrong. Oh, I want that. Give me that. You see, our sin nature is one of selfishness and pride. And Adam and Eve chose to give in to that sin nature. And as a result, every one of us are born in that state. That is why a two-year-old learns to say no all on their own and we have to teach them to say yes. That's why a two-year-old finds it very easy to say why and we have to teach them to submit. That's why a two-year-old finds it very easy to say gimme and hard to share. Job learned this lesson by God speaking directly to him. You see, up till this point in the book, Job has been saying, God, give me. And all of a sudden, we see a shift. I am not worthy. I have spoken of things that I can't understand, I can't comprehend, because God, you are so much greater. You know, the opposite of submission is selfishness and rebellion. 
The book of Romans actually speaks to this idea of our sin nature being at the, at the center of the opposite. Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, it says this, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. 1 Samuel 15 takes it a step further and tells us that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and arrogance or pride is like idolatry. You see, this is why humble submission is generally not two words that we would say on our, on our favorite words list. You know, so when we start talking about submission, we kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I have to. But as we look at the life of Job, and we look at this change that happened in his life, I can't help but think those are two words that should be on our favorites list. Now, I just want to share with you something. Uh, this week, I, I took time and, and did a study on this word submission and on, on the idea of submission and submitting. And I wanted to see <clears throat> how many different relationships does this relate to in Scripture. I suspect right now, the moment that I've started talking about submission, Many of you have a specific relationship in mind. You're thinking, oh, he's going to talk about, and you're filling in the blank. Here's some of, and I may not have got them all. I mean, this, this was just one week worth of study. I, there's probably whole books written on this of people that have studied it more that would find others. But did you know that in Luke chapter 10, we're told that demons submit to the name of Jesus? In 1 Peter chapter 3, angels and spiritual forces submit to Jesus. In first, Second Chronicles chapter 30, Job 22, Psalm 68, Psalm 81, Hebrews 12, and James 4, we're told that we all are to submit to God. Now we come to the earthly relationships. If we read through Scripture, the first time we see the word submission used in terms of a relationship between two people, it happens to be a lady by the name of Hagar, who is a servant to Sarah. And Sarah has been treating Hagar poorly, and so Hagar has run away, and God tells Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, return to your master and submit to her. Hold on to the context of that story, because we're going to talk about that in just a minute, because that is not what the master deserved. The master deserved for the servant to be gone. What else do we see? We see uh, Genesis chapter 41, story of Joseph. You're familiar with the story of Joseph? Joseph the Technicolor Dreamcoat. We've got musicals written about it and theater productions done. That's the story we're talking about. Okay, Joseph, favorite son. He gets the nice coat. His brothers are jealous, so they decide to get rid of him, so they sell him to slave traders. They take him to Egypt. He ends up in a position of influence. Then he ends up in jail. Then he's back in a position of influence. In fact, he's recognized by Pharaoh himself, like the king of Egypt, and the, and the Pharaoh ends up putting him as the second in command. And God ends up using Joseph to provide for the people of Israel when a famine happens and there's no food left. They hear there's food in Egypt because Joseph has been storing up food and, and leading the people of Egypt in such a way that they've been storing up this food. And God ends up using Joseph to be the provider for the people of Israel. 
How does Pharaoh describe the relationship with Joseph and all the people of Egypt? He's told that all the people will submit to him. This is like the king of Egypt telling the people this. And Pharaoh is saying, you're going to submit to somebody who is not an Egyptian, does not have a birthright to be in this position of power. He's been in jail. He's been a servant. He doesn't really deserve it. But you are going to submit because of the position that I'm putting him in. Some other examples. Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 tell us that we are to be submissive to our rulers. Romans, that same passage is also taken a step further, and it's not just political rulers, but we are to be in submission to human authorities. Hebrews 13 takes it a step further and describes the relationship between us and all leaders. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 takes it a step further and says that we are to be submissive to leaders in the church, unless you think leaders simply means the elected positions or the pastors that are called and that kind of thing. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as well that we are to be submissive to those who have been Christians longer than us. Then, of course, we have Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 16, and Colossians 3 that talk about the relationship between wives and husbands. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 that talk about the relationship of women in the church. But lest we think, okay, this is just a gender thing now, we're starting to sound like it. 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants are to be submissive to their masters. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, what has that got to do with me and Estevan? I mean, I haven't, I haven't got any servants, and you know, I'm not a master. You know, in those days, that was their employment. That means employees and employer relationship. And lest you think that you don't fit in with any of these relationships that have been described, does anybody know what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us? The wheels are turning. I won't point anybody out and put you on the spot. Don't worry, but just think about it for a second. Submit to one another. When we talk about this idea of humble submission, It is something that relates to our relationship with God, but it actually relates to our relationship with everyone. Now let me just throw a few cautions out. You know, when we we start talking about submission, there's a few things that we'll think. First of all, we think, oh, well, submission, that should be based on what I want or what I understand or what I like or what's deserved. Well, remember the story of Hagar? Did her master deserve for her to submit to her? No, she'd been beating her. She should be running away and and like fleeing for her life. Her master didn't deserve that. Think of the story of Job. What is the one question that Job has been asking of the Lord through this whole book? Why? God, why am I suffering? I don't deserve this. Does God answer that question anywhere in the four chapters that we looked at last week? I'll make it easy for you. The answer is no. He talks about who he is, what he's done. He talks about his justice and his judgment. But God never once answers Job's question of why he is suffering. And yet, Job submits. 
You know, somebody else, the story that comes to mind is somebody who submitted in a time that really the person did not deserve his submission. You familiar with the story of King Saul and David? David has been anointed to be king, but Saul currently is the king, so you've got a, kind of a little bit of tension going on there. And uh, Saul is actually out to kill David. So he's got his army out, and they're chasing David down, and David's got his loyal men that are defending him. And we got two different accounts of opportunities David had to kill Saul. The first one is, is, is I find it kind of a humorous story. They're hiding in a cave. David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul and his army is outside of the cave, and, and they don't know that David and his men are inside the cave. And Saul comes into the cave because he needs a little bit of privacy because he needs to relieve himself. He does not know that the cave is full of David's soldiers. He's all alone in the cave doing his business. And all of a sudden, David's men start whispering, and they're like, David, now's your chance. This is the chance God's given you. You can kill Saul. You can become king. Hold on to that story. Obviously, he doesn't kill the king because a little while later, we have another story where David and another soldier sneak into, into Saul's camp, right up to where Saul is sleeping. Imagine he's right here. All his soldiers are around. They're sound asleep. And here's David and his, his loyal soldier right beside him. And the soldier looks over and goes, David, David, that's King Saul. Just imagine David. Uh, yeah, I know. Like, you didn't have to tell me. He doesn't need a name tag. I know who he is. No, no, that's King Saul. And look what's beside him. His spear is stuck in the ground. David, take that spear and run him through, and you can become king. In both of these times, David's response is one of humble submission to the authority God has given to the king. David says, I will not harm the Lord's servant. Did Saul deserve that? No, he's out trying to kill David. If anything, we would say it's totally justifiable. David should have run him through and should have become king. God had already anointed him to be king. That's what makes sense in my mind. And yet David says, I will not harm the Lord's anointed Submission is not based on what we want, understand, agree with, or what a person deserves. But I need to throw out another caution. It also is not just mindless obedience. Sometimes we cringe at the word submission because we get this picture of just doing absolutely everything we're told, like a, becoming a slave kind of thing, and we don't think about what's being said at all. You know, Scripture teaches us very clearly that there's a hierarchy to submission. There is an order to submission. Let's jump to the book of Acts. Peter and John, they're going into the temple one day and there's a guy there who hasn't been able to walk for his entire life. And they walk up to him and they say, hey, give us your attention, look at us. And this guy looks up, hoping that he's going to get money because that's what he does every day. He's outside the temple begging, hoping that people will give him enough money that he can buy food and he can keep going in life. And Peter and John look at him and say, we haven't got silver and gold to give you. But what we've got, we'll definitely give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And that guy gets up and he started, the scriptures tell us he is walking and leaping and praising God. Some of you are probably thinking of a little kid song that we used to sing years ago. You know, he went walking and leaping and praising God. And I always loved that just because you got to jump up in the middle of church and make all kinds of things rattle. It was fun, you know. But that's the, that's the story. It's true. Now what happens next 
the religious leaders aren't too comfortable with this. They're not really comfortable with this teaching about Jesus, and now we've got Peter and John, and they're explaining to everybody what has just happened about who Jesus is, so the religious leaders pull them aside. In fact, they don't just pull them aside. They actually throw them in jail while they figure out what they're going to do with them, and they pull them back into the, the place where they are meeting, and we have these words ushered, uh, given to them. Then they, the religious leaders, this is Acts chapter 4, then they called them in, that's Peter and John, again, and commanded them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Submission does not imply just mindless obedience and do exactly what you're told. We need to continually be thinking about it. And if what we are asked to do is ever contrary to what God says, what God says trumps it. That's what Peter and John said. Should we listen to you or God? Now, Something else that we sometimes think about when we hear the word submission. We think that it's a gag order on opposing somebody. You know, if, well, if I'm really going to be submissive to this person, that means I'm not going to tell them that I, I question what they're doing. Well, we actually have examples of that in Scripture where the opposite is done. David and Saul. Let's go back to that story. David totally submitted to Saul and to the authority that God had given. He chose not to kill him. He said the Lord will be the one that will take his life. But what happens next in both stories? You see, David took something in both cases. The first time, he cut a little bit off the corner of Saul's robe. I'll let your imagination go to how that worked, knowing what he was doing in the cave kind of thing. He had to get pretty close to him, but he got close enough that he was able to cut a corner off the robe. And when he was in that camp, he took the spear and the water jug that was beside. And what does he do? He steps far enough away that he's safe, and he cries out to Saul and says, Look, I had opportunity to kill you. I am not your enemy here. I didn't kill you because you are the Lord's anointed. He appealed his case. He spoke out and said, this is not right. But even in speaking out, he still respected who Saul was. In fact, we're told in chapter 24 that David actually bowed down on the ground as a sign of respect to the king who was trying to kill him as he appealed his case to him. One final thing. When we talk about submission, it assumes that there is authority. That's a whole other sermon we could talk about what authority is, but I just simply want to say this. Authority does not mean that we have opportunity to wield power. We often think that authority means power. And yes, authority does involve power, and God calls people to positions of authority, which means there is a position of power and influence. But have you ever thought of the fact that authority also means increased responsibility. The moment that I married my wife, I chose to accept the God-given responsibility of being the head of the home. 
The moment I stepped into a pastoral position, I chose to accept the responsibility that God has given to me as such. We're in the middle of political elections. We've just had our provincial, our civic is coming up. You know, the moment that somebody steps into that office, they not only are stepping into a position of authority, of power, but there's also an increased responsibility. They are being given by God, whether they recognize it or not, added responsibility for which they will be held accountable. And you know, we often think that authority is the power figure. It's the one who demands this is what needs to do, and that's partly why we cringe when we hear submission. But do you remember the last relationship that I pointed out in Scripture when it comes to submission? Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another. If submission is the choice to come under the authority of someone else, and it is the desire to do what is best for that person, the attitude actually is the same. Let's specifically look at the relationship of husband and wife. And you're thinking to yourself right now, oh, pastor, you're treading on some dangerous territory here. There's some pretty strong opinions about this. Well, hear me out. We know what submit means. And how many times have I had conversations with people that are really uncomfortable with that idea? Wives got to submit to their husbands. Oh, that means they got to do what they tell them to do. And, and all these ideas, which some of which I've spoken about as I've shared the cautions. But they forget the very next phrase. What is the husband to do? Anybody know what it is? Just call it out. Husbands, love your wives. How? as Christ loved the church. Christ is the one who's in authority over us as a church, and yet what is Christ's attitude towards the church? Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Did Jesus want to die on a cross? What do you think? Did he? Did Jesus want to suffer? Did Jesus want to take on the sin of the world? No. What's the passage that Dan read for us from Matthew? It's recorded in three of the Gospels, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes out and prays. And what is the prayer that he prays? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want this. I don't like this. This is going to hurt. This is painful. I'm going to be separated from you. All of these things are going on in Christ's mind. And yet, even though he's the one in authority over the church, and he could have had done anything he wanted to. In fact, the scriptures teach when, when, when Peter pulls out the, the sword and strikes the, the ear off of the, the, the servant of the high priest, uh, you know, Jesus points out, um, do you really think I need you to fight for me? I could call a legion of angels to fight for me. This is God we're talking about. And yet, what is his attitude? First of all, Jesus is submissive to his heavenly Father. Not my will, but thine. And relationship to the church he does what is best for the church. 
Is there positions of authority? Yes. And as I say, that's a whole other sermon as to what that looks like. That, that's, that's something that we're taught in Scripture. But the attitude of all of us should be we are submissive to one another. We should be willing to submit in the same way that Christ was willing to submit. And he gave up his life in obedience to his Father and out of love for you and for me. That's the description of husbands loving your wives. Kind of sounds similar to the definition of submission, doesn't it? Is there a position of authority? Yes. But does that mean it's a power position? It's an overbearing position? It's a controlling position? No. In fact, in every one of the relationships that are described in Scripture, we have the opportunity to love and to serve one another, either as the one who is under the authority or the one who is in the authority. How does this fit in with the two-year-old's favorite words? That's human nature. That's the sin nature. That's what we desire and crave. But when Jesus Christ is at work in our lives and the Holy Spirit is ministering to us, he will transform us so that we begin to choose to live in this reality of truly, humbly submitting to one another. We see the change that happened in Job's heart. In fact, next week we're going to take a look at the last section in the book, the last chapter, or the last, last sermon on the book of Job, and we're going to see that Job was actually willing to serve and love those friends that had been tearing him down for the majority of the book. Job shifted from focusing on what he wanted to focusing on what God wanted and humbly submitting to him. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, I would invite each one of us to use this as an opportunity to give thanks for the fact that Jesus was willing to humbly to submit to his Father. He didn't want to die, but he was willing to die as an act of submission to his Father. It also is an opportunity for us to re be reminded of our relationship with Christ. Are we choosing to live in submission to Christ? It also is an opportunity to reflect on the calling we have been given to submit to one another.